you have your Bibles, I invite you to take them and open up with me to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 12 to 26. If you're visiting with us today, we're in the middle of a sermon series through the gospel according to Luke. Uh, this is how we uh, practice the preaching of God's word. We start in the first chapter of a book and go all the way through to the end. So we're in Luke chapter 5, and we're looking at verses 12 uh, to 26 here in Luke chapter 5. And as you turn there, I'll ask that you follow along with me as we read together from the Scriptures. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 12. While Jesus was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. On one of these days, as Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, He answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, And go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray as we consider God's word uh, together. Father, we do thank you for the provision of the Scriptures that You've given to us, inspired by Your Holy Spirit, Father, true, perfect, complete, without error, and for our everlasting good in Christ. We thank You, God, that the Scriptures are able to make us wise unto salvation. We thank You, God, that the Scriptures are a light in dark places to us. And we thank You, Father, most of all, that the Scriptures reveal to us the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, for the grace to hear and to believe today. We pray for hearts to be changed, Father, we pray for new life to be granted where it was not before. We pray, Father, for growth. We pray for worship in our hearts. We pray for help, Father, to those who are needy. We pray for encouragement to those who are weak in faith. And we pray, Father, for the nearness of God to be known to us in a way that reminds us that You are not a God who remains far off, but a God who draws near 
in Jesus Christ. Please keep me from error, Father. Please grant us all discernment to know the truth and to hold fast to it until the day that the Lord Jesus returns. And we pray, Father, in His name. Amen. For the last few weeks in Luke's Gospel, we've witnessed the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. And in these early days of Jesus' ministry, there have been two consistent themes if you've been uh, tracking with us through the sermon series. One, Jesus teaches with great authority. And two, Jesus heals with great power. It began, you'll remember, back in chapter 4 when Jesus taught with authority in the synagogue at Nazareth. And then His teaching was immediately confirmed as He healed the man with the unclean spirit and and delivered Peter's mother-in-law from sickness with a fever. And that was only the beginning of it, right? As we saw in Luke chapter 4, people began to flock to Jesus to hear Him teach and to benefit from His mighty ministry, His powerful ministry. And so from the beginning, these, these themes about the Lord Jesus have gained our attention. He teaches with great authority and He heals with great power. Well, as we come to this passage, verses 12 to 26 in Luke 5, as we come to this passage today, we might think that this text is simply continuing on with the same themes. And on some level, that's true. Jesus does continue to teach. You see it there in verse 17. And He certainly continues to heal people with great power. And from that, we we might conclude that this text is just more of the same. You know, just more of what we have seen already. But that conclusion, friends, would miss the significance of this passage. It would miss the significance of these two healing stories. Yes, the themes are similar, but Luke is also taking us deeper here. In fact, I think you could say that Luke is taking us closer to the very heart of what Jesus came to do. In fact, there's a number of ways that Luke tells you, as you're reading this passage, there's a number of ways that Luke tells you that that's exactly what he's doing, that he's taking, theme, uh, taking things deeper than what they have been. The first is that there's a new set of characters. Luke introduces us to a new set of characters. You'll notice the teachers of the law and the Pharisees enter the story for the first time in verse 17. And almost immediately, that's not almost immediately, it is immediately, there's controversy between them and Jesus. The religious leaders question Jesus. They're skeptical of this untrained teacher from Nazareth. And so from this point forward, really from chapter 5 until chapter 24, the religious leaders will stalk Jesus' steps all the way to the cross where they crucify Him. That begins here in chapter 5. And that's one way that Luke is telling you that things are going deeper. There's a new set of characters. Jesus' opponents, basically. The second way that Luke tells you that he's taking, themes, uh, taking things deeper is there's a new theme in Jesus' teaching. For the first time in verse 20, Jesus mentions forgiveness. You see it there? It's the first time that he mentions Forgiveness. Up until this point, Jesus has been primarily teaching from God's Word. His miracles have been largely meeting physical needs. And that was the extent of His claims. Teach with great authority. Heal with great power. But here in chapter 5, Jesus takes it deeper. Jesus is taking things much deeper, in fact. And He begins to claim spiritual, even divine authority. And that's why I say, friends, that this passage takes us closer to the heart of Jesus' ministry. Yes, 
Jesus teaches, but He's more than a teacher. Yes, Jesus heals, but He is more than a miracle worker. To speak of forgiveness of sins raises the stakes, so to speak, and it puts salvation clearly in focus. You see, it's about more than physical needs. It's about even more than just bare scriptural knowledge. What has this man come to do? He's come to save. He's come to save sinners and forgive those who cannot be reconciled to God on their own. This man has come to save, to reconcile God and man once more. Salvation, then, is what lies at the heart of Jesus' ministry. You're not going to understand Jesus until you understand that He came to save sinners. People like us. And here in Luke chapter 5, we get to hear it from Jesus' own mouth. This is the purpose of His ministry. The forgiveness of sins. And that purpose, friends, should help us understand how we approach uh, this text. There's two healing miracles recounted in this passage. And while the circumstances are different, the two miracles are really combining to give us the same thing. It's teaching us about the heart of Jesus' ministry, which is the salvation of sinners. So in terms of an outline, if you like to take notes, the outline is very simple. There's two miracles, so I have two points. Two things that we want to see together. Two truths about the saving work that Jesus has come to accomplish. The first one emphasizes Jesus' compassionate power, and the second emphasizes Jesus' unique authority. Two truths then that I, I pray will help us see and rejoice in the Savior. The first comes in verses 12 to 16. With compassion, Jesus does what the law cannot. With compassion, Jesus does what the law cannot. Luke quickly transitions us to a new scene in verse 12 as Jesus is ministering in an unnamed city. But it's not the city that's the important point here. It's the man who approaches Jesus in that city. Notice the man with me. He would have been hard to ignore in Jesus' day. Luke describes the man as full of leprosy. Leprosy is a word that captures any number of skin conditions in the ancient world. Luke says the man is full of leprosy, which means he's in a really terrible condition. He's in a really terrible condition. First of all, leprosy makes the man socially unwelcome. In, in the first century, the only known uh, way to deal with leprosy was to quarantine someone. In fact, that's what the law of Moses required. Leviticus chapter 13. If a man was diagnosed with a leprous condition, he was required to live outside the city with no human contact except with other lepers. Just think about that for a moment, friends. To be a leper is to be an outcast. Literally. To be outside the city. You're an outcast. You're ostracized. You're alone. You can't see your family. You can't have a job, which means you're dependent on the charity of other people. But even that charity would be hard to come by because anytime you worked up enough courage to take your physically disformed body close enough to the city to beg for help, you would have to cry out, unclean, unclean, so that nobody would accidentally bump into you when they tried to help you. It's a terrible condition. You're socially unwelcome. But the worst part of all is that not only are you socially unwelcome, you're also religiously, or we could say ceremonially, unclean. This is part of the reason why the law of Moses required lepers to live outside of the city. Because you were impure. You were contaminated. You were unclean religiously. 
and you would make other people unclean. You couldn't gather with the people of God for worship. You couldn't go to the synagogue. You couldn't go to the temple. You couldn't take your sacrifices to the priest. You couldn't do any of those things. Nothing. You were unclean, unfit, impure before God. And it was visibly pictured both in your body and in your social position. You live outside the camp. You're religiously unclean. So you put all of that together, right? Put all of that together and you can begin to appreciate the great need that this man in verse 12 has. It's a need that neither he nor anyone else can do anything about. The man is afflicted, he's alone, he's unclean, and he's largely without hope in the world. And yet something remarkable happens in verse 12. Look there, the man comes and he falls down before Jesus. Understand, friends, this is an act of faith on the man's part. It's an act of faith. It's an expression of dependence. Whatever hope the man has, it's bound up in Jesus. The doctors can do nothing for him. The priests can do nothing for him. But still, the man comes and he, he falls down before Jesus. You see, this is a feature of true biblical faith at its core. To have faith is to cast yourself on Jesus for the help that you know you need. There's lots of misunderstanding about faith. This passage is actually very clear on what it is. Faith, is. faith does not mean that you have all of the answers. And faith also does not mean that you can make sense of every situation. And neither does faith equal you doing your part so that Jesus can then do the rest. That's not faith. Faith in its simplest form is what you see here with this leper. It's not surprising, friends, in the Gospel that the man who would be able to teach us the most is the one who is the most reprehensible, the leper. Right? He's teaching us. Faith in its simplest form is what you see here with, with the leper. It's casting everything that you have entirely on Jesus and saying, if you don't help me, Jesus, I have nothing. That's faith. But what happens next is one of the more moving and, and powerful moments in the entirety of Luke's Gospel. Notice verse 13. And Jesus stretched out His hand and touched the leper, saying, I will be clean. Friends, I want you to notice here the remarkable connection of power and compassion. We, we don't often put power and compassion together. It's very rare that you find power and compassion together in the same person. And that's precisely what we see here with Jesus. Jesus' word has power. Notice how Jesus heals the man with only His word. This is important. You see it there in verse 13. It's actually one word in the original. Jesus says, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left Him. Remember, there's no cure for leprosy in Jesus' day. Doctors couldn't help. Medicine was useless. And yet with one word, Jesus heals the man. His word has power. But at the same time, notice what comes with Jesus' word. Notice that before Jesus spoke the powerful word, Luke tells us that Jesus stretched out His hand and touched the leper. That's compassion, brothers and sisters. Jesus touched the leper. Who knows how long this man has been ostracized from the community? Who, who knows how long it's been since the man has felt the hand of another human being on his shoulder in a display of friendship? For years Probably. The leper has seen people's hands only recoil from him. Get away from me. 
And yet here in verse 13, Jesus is stretching out his hand, not in disgust, but in compassion. And and listen, friends, Jesus didn't have to touch the man. He didn't have to touch him. The man is healed by Jesus' word. Be clean, Jesus says. He didn't have to touch him. And so Jesus could have simply spoken the word and skipped the touch. And yet that's not the kind of Savior that Jesus has come to be. The Lord Jesus does not remain far off issuing commands from a distance because He's wary of getting too close to dirty people like us. No, Jesus draws near to His people. First of all, by coming into this world at all, and then by going deeper and embracing those who are unclean. And that means, brothers and sisters, that compassion is what drives Jesus at this point. If you want to know the heart of Jesus Christ, then look no further than verse 13. He touched the leper. You can be the worst sinner with more baggage and more shame than any person you know, and still the Lord Jesus will not cast you out. You can be the most unclean, the most vile, the most unwelcome outcast on the planet earth. And when you fall before the Lord Jesus confessing your need, His response is not to recoil from you, but to reach out with tenderness and with compassion and with grace and even with a loving embrace. That's the heart of the Savior, friends. That's the heart of Jesus Christ, verse 13. And if you are here this morning weighed down with shame or afraid that you're too unclean for God to help you, if that's you today, then I pray that you see Jesus' heart here in God's Word. You You don't have to hide from the Lord Jesus. You don't have to clean yourself up first. With all the shame, all the uncleanness, you can come to Christ in humility, and you can trust that He is both willing and able to make you clean. And as this passage teaches us so beautifully, Jesus is willing and able to do just that. This leper has no hope on his own. And with one word, Jesus makes him clean. And with one touch, Jesus confirms, or he confers upon him that status of friend and brother and even just fellow human being that leprosy had taken from him. Jesus gives it back with one touch. And so if you're weighed down this morning, you don't have to hide. You can come to the Lord Jesus and find the grace that you need. He receives the unclean, and with great compassion, Jesus embraces them as his own. But amazingly, friends, that's only part of the good news in this miracle with the leper. There's another display of power that we might say completes Jesus' compassion and makes it more than mere sentiment. I do want to be clear on this point. Jesus... Jesus' compassion is not sentimentality. It's not a hallmark card. It's real and it's deep and it changes things. And there's another display of power that shows us why that is. Notice again that the leper is healed immediately, verse 13. There's no delay, no wait, just instantaneous healing through the word of Jesus Christ. And notice also that Jesus is not made unclean in the process. Did you catch that? If you touch a leper according to the law of Moses, you become unclean. But that's not what happened with Jesus. Jesus touches the man, and instead of being made unclean himself, Jesus makes the unclean clean. Again, it's a picture of the good news that Jesus has been preaching. It's a picture of Jesus' power. Jesus' cleanness is greater than our uncleanness. 
Jesus' purity is greater than our filth. Jesus' perfection is greater than our shame. He touches the unclean, but He doesn't become unclean. He makes the unclean clean. That's power, friends. It's the kind of power that saves sinners like us. But it's, it's what happens next that has captured my attention this week as I was preparing for today. It's another display of power that helps us understand the gospel. Verse 14, Jesus says, don't tell anybody. That doesn't work. The man goes and tells everyone. Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Just go show yourself to the priest. You see verse 14? Go show yourself to the priest and then offer the required sacrifices for uh, the cleansing. Now, what Jesus has in mind here are the requirements laid down in Leviticus 14. If a person's leprosy ever subsided, there were certain steps that the person had to follow in order to confirm that they were now cured. So it was like the re-entry process for going back into the community. You had to go and show yourself to the priest, and the priest would uh, verify that you were now able to go back into uh, the community, right? The priest had to confirm it. And since Jesus lives in obedience to God's law, he tells the man to follow those instructions. That by itself is, is a striking point. Jesus has not come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. Okay? If, if, you, if you think that Jesus and Moses are opposed to one another, you misunderstand both Jesus and Moses. They're not opposed to one another. Jesus fulfills the law. He doesn't oppose it. He fulfills it. But here's what's most striking at this point. Even as Jesus submits to the law, he is also exposing the weakness of the law as well. He's also exposing the weakness of the, wall, of, the, of the law. Think about it. The priest could confirm the man's cleansing, but the priest couldn't make the man clean. The law could verify that there had been a cure, but the law could not provide the cure. In fact, if you read through Leviticus 13 and 14, which if you want to do that, Leviticus 13 is really, really long because there's a lot of rules about what to do with lepers. Right, so if you read through those whole two chapters, and they're really long, you will find exactly zero instructions for how to cure leprosy. There's, there's, no, there's no law, there's no instruction, no commandment that can make you clean, according to the book of Leviticus. The law can confirm that you are clean, but the law cannot make you clean. So as this former leper goes to see the priest there would be one thing very clearly standing out in his mind. Jesus, not the law, made me clean. Jesus, not the priest, made me clean. Right? Jesus does what the law cannot. Brothers and sisters, do you see the picture of the gospel? A picture of the power of Jesus Christ to save what the law could not do, Jesus has done. What no priest could provide, Jesus has freely given. You see, we're all like the leper in this passage. That's who we should identify with. We're all unclean before God. And therefore, we cannot dwell in God's presence. We cannot come before God on our own. But what's more, there's no commandment. There's no law that we can follow that would make us clean. There are no steps that we can accomplish. There's no prescriptions that we can adopt. Instead, we are entirely dependent on the power of Christ to do what we cannot do and what the law cannot do. We're ent entirely dependent upon Christ to make us clean. And friends, that's why the gospel is good news. If you could make yourself clean, then you could also make yourself unclean. Once more, 
That's why the gospel is good news. Believers are made clean by the power of Jesus alone. Power that was poured out for his people through the shedding of his blood on the cross. And that means, brothers and sisters, amazingly, that our status before God is secure and unchanging. Again, this is why the gospel is good news. Those whom Jesus cleanses, he cleanses completely. Once and for all. There are no relapse for Jesus' people. He cleanses them forever. If you're a Christian, this is what the Scriptures call your identity in Christ. If you be, Listen to me. This might be the most important sentence I say. If you are a Christian this morning, if you belong to Christ today by faith, you are not defined by your sin, past, present, or future. You are not defined by your sin, past, present, or future. If you're a, you a Christian, you are defined by Christ. You are who Jesus says you are. Or even better, you are what Jesus makes you. And the gospel says that Jesus makes his people clean. Clean. It, it, it's actually a doctrine within the work of Christ that we don't talk about enough. The doctrine of expiation. And he does it with compassion. He does it with compassion. Now, part of the beauty of the gospel is that it's, it's so good, there's always more to see. Somebody asked me once, why do you just preach the same thing every Sunday? Literally, someone said that to me. Why do you preach the same thing every Sunday? And I said, because there's way more to see that we hadn't seen yet. There's way more to the gospel than just, you know, ask Jesus into your heart and go to heaven. Way more! It's much better news than that. So that's why we say the same thing every Sunday. It's part of the beauty of the gospel. There's always more glory to see. And the picture with the leper is incredible, but Luke's not finished. He wants to give us another picture. The second miracle, the healing of the paralytic, the second miracle takes things deeper. And here, Jesus leaves no doubt as to the purpose of his ministry. So let's, let's look at verses 17 to 26 now and, and note the second truth about salvation in this passage with authority Jesus does what only God can. With compassion, Jesus does what the law cannot. And with authority, Jesus does what only God can. The circumstances have changed, but the overall feel is the same. Again, Jesus is approached by a man in great need. Verse 17, the man is paralyzed. Verse 18, his need is so great, he's dependent on his friends to bring him to Jesus. This is beyond the leper, isn't it? At least the man with leprosy could come and fall down before Jesus. The man in verse 17 is in even greater need. He needs his friends to help him. And yet, despite those circumstances, the man and his friends display great faith. Notice verse 19. The man's friends carry him to the house where Jesus is, but there's so many people, they can't get in to hear Jesus teach. And that might seem like the end of the road, but not for those people who believe the man's friends simply go up on the roof, which would have been flat in first century Palestine, and they, they dig a hole in the roof. And they let the man down on a, a, a pulley system, apparently. They let a, the man down on his bed, and he comes down like right in the middle of Jesus' teaching. Now, I know there's all sorts of questions about how did that happen, and how long did it take, and did Jesus stop his teaching as like roof particles were falling down? I don't know. That's not what Luke is interested in. The key point here is not the roof, but the faith that stopped at no obstacle, right? They, they stopped at no obstacle. Again, this is another feature of biblical faith. In the first point, I wanted you to see the simplicity of faith, that it just casts everything on Jesus. And in this point, I want you to see the persistence of faith, 
It's persistent. It stops at no obstacle. It just keeps trusting even when things seem hopeless. Biblical faith is persistent. I was talking to a Christian one time, a brother in the Lord, and he was going through a season of darkness and um, the, the Puritans used to call it melancholy. We might call it depression today. Going through a season of darkness. And the man said to me, I just wish that I was growing more and, and living the Christian life better. And I said, that's interesting. Why do you say that? And he said, because all I can do right now is just wake up in the morning and believe that God is real and that He saved me by Jesus. That's all I can believe every day. I just keep believing that. And I said, praise God, brother. That's faith. That's persistent biblical faith. You're growing. You're living the Christian life. So if all you can do, listen to me, if all you can do is hold on to the things that are true, even when they seem to not be true, if that's all you're doing, you're living as a follower of Christ. It's persistent. You see, it's persistent. It keeps going. It keeps going. Faith is simple. It casts everything on Jesus, and faith is persistent. Then comes the pinnacle of the passage, verse 20. The man is lowered down before Jesus, and notice what Jesus says. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven. Now, that's a surprising thing for Jesus to say, isn't it? Clearly, why has the man and his friends come to see Jesus? Because he wants to be healed, right? That's, that's why they've come. They want to be healed. And yet, Jesus' response is to say to the man, your sins are forgiven. Now, is Jesus saying that the man's condition is because of his sin? No, that's not Jesus' point. Rather, Jesus is taking this opportunity to teach us what's at the heart of his ministry. Jesus has not uh, come merely to meet physical needs, but to reconcile people to God, to provide the forgiveness that we need. So Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, because he's trying to make a deeper point here. Understand, this is a staggering claim on Jesus' part. It, it's one thing to teach from God's Word, which is what Jesus has been doing, but it's something else entirely to claim that you speak with God's voice or that you act with God's authority. And that's precisely what Jesus is doing here. Verse 20 is nothing less than a claim of divine authority that only God Himself can make. And in verse 21 those new characters, the religious leaders, they make precisely this connection. Remember, this is the first time that Jesus and the religious leaders have met up in Luke's Gospel. And, and I'll contend to you that this, it's not a coincidence that Jesus chooses this moment as the first time to speak about forgiveness. It's not a coincidence. Jesus is purposefully putting the central point of His ministry before the religious leaders. If the Pharisees want to know what's up with Jesus, if they want to investigate Jesus, then Jesus is going to make sure that they get the truth. Notice what the religious leaders say, verse 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now understand, the religious leaders are exactly right on one level. They are right to conclude that only God has the authority to forgive sins. That's absolutely true. That's a true statement. But where the religious leaders are wrong is their conclusion about Jesus. They fail to see His identity. They fail to see the truth that Jesus' ministry is revealing to them. 
And so in verse 22, Jesus removes any doubt. You'll notice that Jesus perceives the religious leader's question, which should perhaps clue them in that this is no mere man that they are dealing with, if he can perceive their thoughts. Even still, Jesus proceeds to ask a question of his own. Verse 22, Jesus asks a question. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Now, it's important, friends, that we follow Jesus' logic, that you follow the logic of his question. Jesus' point is that it's easier to say something that cannot be confirmed than to say something that can be confirmed. The religious leaders have no way to either confirm or deny that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Why not? Because you can't see forgiveness from God. You can't can't confirm it. There's no visual way to prove that Jesus is telling the truth. But that's not the case if Jesus says to the man, get up and walk home. There is visual proof of that, and immediately so. If the man doesn't get up and walk then it's clear that Jesus is making this up, that he, is, that he has no authority to do this, that, that he's lying. But again, that's not, the, that's not the case with just saying, you are forgiven. You can't, you, can, you can't confirm that, you can't deny that with your eyes. So, in, Jesus's, in the logic of Jesus' question, it's easier to say, your sins are forgiven. Because we can't do anything about that, we can't confirm it. Now, here, with that logic in mind, here comes the payoff to Jesus' question. Notice verse 24. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, Jesus said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately the man rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. Friends, this is a master stroke on Jesus' part. Think about what he has done. Jesus has done the physically miraculous thing, healing the man, in order to prove that he has the authority to do the truly miraculous thing, forgive his sins. He did what seems harder in order to prove that he can do what's actually impossible for anyone except God, forgive sins. And so there's, there's, no, there's no doubt here. It's an incredible and undeniable confirmation of Jesus' claim. If Jesus has the authority to make this man walk, which he does, then surely Jesus has the authority to forgive this man's sins. And therefore, if the religious leaders want an answer about Jesus, then they've got one now. Jesus is not merely a teacher. He's not simply a miracle worker. He's the Son of God, or the Son of Man, as he says in this passage from Daniel chapter 7. He's the one who has authority to accomplish God's saving work on earth. There is no other conclusion from this passage, friends. There's there's simply no other conclusion. It's undeniable. Jesus is the promised Savior of the people of God. And He alone has the authority to do what God can do. Friends, this is an extremely important point for us to consider and understand. And I want to tell you why. I'll even go so far as to say that this gets to the heart of what it means to be a Christian. At least a biblical one. In our culture, it's increasingly common for people to speak of Christianity in terms that barely rise above sentimentality. Christianity is about unconditional love, people will say. Christianity is about not judging other people. Christianity is about, not, uh, Christianity is about showing acts of mercy. And there's a grain of truth in all of those statements. And yet, 
for all of those attempts to define Christianity, this is often the piece that is missing. The divine authority of Jesus Christ. The authority that He possesses alone to forgive sins. Understand, friends, this, is, this, this truth which is essential to Christianity, this claim of divine authority on Jesus' part, even authority to forgive sins, it's essential to Christianity, and in our day, it's unique. On a couple of points, it's unique, first of all, because it acknowledges that we need forgiveness. To say that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins is to admit that we have sinned, and we need forgiveness. That's something that we modern folks don't like to admit. But here we have Jesus putting forgiveness right at the center of His ministry. It's the first thing. It's the first thing that He emphasizes in the, His relationship with the religious leaders. You want to know what I'm about, Jesus says? I'm about doing what only God can do because I'm God. That's what He's saying. He makes no bones about it. You see, there is no Christianity apart from this acknowledgement. To follow Christ is to, it's to, to begin with the confession that I am a sinner and that I cannot save myself and I need Jesus to do what only God can do. And at the same time, this truth is also unique because of the position it affords to Jesus. To say that the authority of Jesus is central to Christianity gives Jesus a preeminent place, a prominent place, even a divine place. And that's unique in our day and age. Listen, lots of people are fine with Jesus as long as He's just a man. If you just let Jesus be a man, just a man, most people are fine with Jesus. But as soon as you connect Jesus with God, then opposition comes. It was that way with the religious leaders in Jesus' day. They're fine with Him healing the man. They don't care if He heals people. They get angry when He claims to be God. And it's the same in our day. Friends, people are fine with all sorts of good things that Jesus' body might do, Jesus' church might do, but when you start claiming that Jesus is God, that Jesus alone has unique authority as God, that Jesus alone is the Savior of the world, that's when people get angry. And, and that's why this passage is so foundational. It helps us understand not only Jesus' ministry in Luke's Gospel, but more than that, it helps us understand what we need to recover in our presentation of Christianity today. It's the divine authority of Jesus. I know our world doesn't like authority. There's no Christianity apart from Jesus ruling everything with His Word. It just doesn't exist. And so the question that I want to close with today is the question of response. You'll notice at the end of the passage that everyone goes home seized with amazement and they're glorifying God and they're filled with awe and they've seen extraordinary things. The question I want to close with is what's the appropriate response for us? If Jesus has the authority to do what only God can do, then how should we respond? Well, just briefly, I want to give you two things to consider. There's more that we could say, but I just want to give you two. Number one, we need to clearly make our Christianity, both as individuals and as a church, focused on Jesus Christ. We need to clearly make our Christianity focused on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, that might sound self-evident to you, but sadly, it's not. 
Many presentations of Christianity today are noteworthy because they are basically Christless. They're basically Christless. So when we have the opportunity to speak about Christianity, let's make sure that we have Jesus in, at the center. What does that look like? Let me tell you. Let's make sure that our Christianity is clear on the reality of sin and the necessity of forgiveness. And then let's labor to show that Jesus alone, who is God in the flesh, has the authority to provide that forgiveness. Let's be Christians who rest our every hope on a bloody cross and an empty tomb. Not merely as religious symbols, but as the very power and grace of God that secured forgiveness once and for all. And let's be willing to be misunderstood and even maligned for the fact that we worship a Savior who is God and man, who was dead and is not dead anymore, and who reigns from heaven right now, and is coming back to judge every person, the living and the dead. Listen, that kind of clear, Christ-centered witness is what our culture needs today. I, somebody asked me recently, how can the church possibly keep up with such rapidly changing culture? And it is changing rapidly. I mean, like what was, what was cutting edge last week is now like the equivalent of 1863 old. Right? It's changing rapidly. How's the church going to keep up? Well, I don't know the answer to that. But I do know that whatever the answer is, it's going to require more focus on Jesus, not less. It's going to require more biblically saturated churches, not less. It's going to take more solid doctrine, not less, right? We need more of Jesus, not less of him. So let's be that kind of Christian and that kind of church. That's the first response that I think this passage with the centrality of Christ's authority, I think that's the first response this passage is telling us to make. Consistently, clearly, and without apology, make our Christianity focused on Jesus. The second response is more personal. We, as Christians, I'm talking to Christians, we need to embrace every day the forgiveness that Christ has won. We need to embrace every day the forgiveness that Christ has won. Again, that may sound self-evident to you, but I don't think it is. I've not been a pastor for very long, going on nine years now. But I'll tell you that in my nine years, far too many Christians are carrying around burdens they are not meant to carry. It's the burden of guilt over sin. Whether it's sin way in the past or perhaps sin that you committed yesterday. Far too many of us are carrying around that kind of guilt. As though we can somehow make atonement for ourselves if we just feel bad for long enough. Right? I would ask you if anyone can relate this morning, but I'm sure that you can. I can relate. And what this passage here is saying to guilt-ridden and weary Christians like us is this. If an unclean leper can be made clean, then Jesus can deal with your sin. If a paralytic can be told to get up and walk home, and he does it, then Jesus can forgive even the worst sin imaginable. Even that sin that you have committed that no one knows about, the one that you're terrified someone will find out about someday, even that one, Jesus says, give it to me in repentance and faith and I'll deal with it. And so I'll come back to what I said earlier in the sermon because I just want to press this home a bit more on, on your hearts and on mine. 
for those who are in Christ, for those who belong to Christ, if you're repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus alone, there is no depth of shame or brokenness that should keep you from the Lord Jesus. In fact, part of the way that you honor Him, part of the way that you glorify Him, is by coming to Him with everything you've got. Shame and all. And trusting that He'll deal with it. You can draw near and find healing. You can draw near and find wholeness. In fact, the entire point of this passage, at least in terms of application, is that Jesus welcomes needy sinners who come to Him in faith. He doesn't cast them out. He welcomes them. So if you're weighed down this morning, if you're carrying around a burden that you're not meant to carry, won't you please see again the compassionate authority of the Savior? Don't carry burdens that Jesus came to take. Don't carry things that He didn't intend for you to take. Be like the leper. I know that sounds strange in, this, in a sermon. Be like the leper today. Be like the paralytic. And give those things to Jesus. With compassion, He can make the worst of sinners clean and with authority, He secures forgiveness once and for all, so that we can all go out together today with amazement, glorifying God, saying, we have not just seen extraordinary things, we have experienced them ourselves in the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you that even when we think that we have reached the depth of His grace and glory in the gospel, that there is infinitely more to see and to behold. We thank you, Father, that Jesus is the friend of sinners who welcomes those who are unclean and makes them clean through His grace. We thank you, Father, that He's also the almighty Son of Man, the Son of God, who can bestow what only God can give, and that's the forgiveness of sins. Father, please help us to see Him as He is and to trust Him and to believe and grant us, Father, the faith to believe that on the cross as Jesus died, Your wrath was indeed satisfied for the sins of all of His people past, present, and future. We pray, God, that that gospel hope would inform us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.